Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD industry and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. Now to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining the show. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Today, we're going to talk about a new initiative the Air Force is pursuing to deliver combat capabilities in a faster, more responsive fashion. It's focused on big leap capabilities the Air Force needs to deter and, if necessary, win in a peer-level conflict. It's called WarTech, and it's run by a team at the Air Force Research Lab, or AFRL for short. The name is a mashup of war for warfighters and tech for technologies and reflects the reinvigorated collaboration between these two groups. Mitchell has been partnering with the folks in the Research Lab's Transformational Capabilities Office, where the WarTech process is nested. Bottom line, we are really impressed with their vision and vectors. We also recognize that this was something we wanted to share with you. Spurring innovation in the Department of Defense is something leaders have chased in the past decade with mixed results. In fact, it's pretty easy to get jaded given the number of initiatives in play, each with their own set of acronyms. Keeping one sorted from another seems like it takes an insider expert. But in all this churn, WarTech really stands out to us as something distinctive and genuine. First, AFRL is committing massive resources to it, about 20% of the AFRL budget. That means WarTech has a top priority. As they say, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. Second, it's occurring in parallel with changes headquarters Air Force in the Pentagon with the Air Force creating a futures division from former Air Force staff elements. They're trying to break out of the cycle of year-to-year budgeting, driving strategy and operational concepts. The goal is to flip this process, letting smart thinking about the future force design of the Air Force shape budget choices, which connects to technology priorities. And we really need this given the security dynamics that are changing fast. You add these two efforts together, WarTech and Air Force Futures, they speak to a powerful set of initiatives focused on empowering the Chief of Staff, General C.Q. Brown's vision of Accelerate, Change, or Lose. Okay, so to help us better understand WarTech, I first want to bring on our very own Major General Retired Larry Stutzream to the show. He's been working with the folks at AFRL, and Stutz, I just want to thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me back again, Slick. Stutz, you know, to help me understand what's in play here, uh, what are the principal forces in play that led to AFRL standing up WarTech? Well, let's start with a little bit of history of where the Air Force is at today. Uh, We go back to the founding of the Air Force and, you know, the leaders that were coming out of World War II, like H. Hap Arnold, you know, they really purposed to make the Air Force a center of excellence for aerospace research. In fact, leading technologists at the time were living with and talking to on a regular basis the senior leaders of the Air Force. And you go forward through the 50s and 60s, 70s, 80s, and you had a very tech-savvy leadership cast within the Air Force. But something happened in the early 90s. Things changed, and this is at the end of the Cold War. And some of those dynamics included uh, separating our cause, the separating of the uh, technologist and the warfighter, Uh, Some of those were, you know, changes in organizational structure. The labs, research labs, were brought together later under AFRL. 
but also some stovepiping. Professionalism of acquisition didn't allow a warfighting leader who run the Air Force to be able to spend time in the technology community. For example, one of the uh, Air Combat Command four stars uh, who's been retired for a while now, he had seven years outside of his warfighting career field to really take dips into program offices and science and stuff. So there was somewhat of an estrangement, a, a stovepiping, a separation of the technologist and warfighter. Another piece of it, of course, uh, you, we have to be really focused on is the change in the threat environment. And after Desert Storm, uh, our competitors out there, especially the peers, the stronger ones like China, they really raced to take away some of the uh, edges we had in warfighting capabilities. And there was a need to go faster, catch up, be more innovative. So in 2018, the Secretary of the Air Force, Heather Wilson, uh, initiated a, a project to develop what's called now the S&T 2030 strategy. And it had within it the, the directive to establish a transformational capabilities portfolio. And out of that later came the, the uh, war tech process. That's a merging together of you know, warfighter and technologists. That's where we're at today, and that's the innovation that needs to succeed. It's intent to accelerate big leap capabilities uh, into the hands of the warfighter. Well, Stutz, I really, really appreciate the uh, scene setter. I know the audience uh, appreciates that as well. And uh, without further delay, uh, let's hear from the experts who are making this happen. Uh, And so to help explain this better to us, uh, we want to hear from the folks involved on both ends of the uh, spectrum with Wartech. So we have Wartech itself and the Pentagon. So uh, in that vein, I'd like to introduce uh, Chris Ristich from uh, AFRL. He's the Director of Air Force Strategic Development Planning and Experimentation Office and the Transformational Capabilities Office, and that entity uh, is what what runs Wartech. Uh, and we also have Kristen Baldwin uh, from Headquarters Air Force. She's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Science, Technology, and Engineering. So I really appreciate both of you being here. Uh, thanks, Lick. I'm really glad to be here and have this discussion about the Wartech process. And Kristen, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, it's a pleasure to join you, and I'm looking forward to the opportunity to share a little bit more about what we're doing. Hey, if I could, if I could add something, um, you know, we, we, we talk about the contraction of, of warfighter and technologist, but Kristen being on, on this, on this cast is actually really important because it's actually a triangle. It's, it's acquisition and warfighter and technologist. And that's really the structure that we've got for governance for this, for helping to prioritize our programs and execute our programs as well. Chris, thanks so much for that. Uh, Since you're talking, let's get started with you first. Sir, please tell me about the first time you heard about Wartech and what really appealed to you about the vision. That time, as you, you kind of mentioned earlier, we had the science and technology strategy that had been signed out in 2019. And it was, a, to me, it was a call to arms, if you will. It, it was a time of a sense of urgency that we really have to, A, change how we do business because our challenges are just so much more difficult than they, than they had been perceived to be over the past couple of decades or so. You, you had a strategy that, that called for some dramatic changes, as, as uh, Stutz talked about earlier, the um, redirecting a significant portion of the portfolio, managing it in a different process. Um, And Wartech came along, and and I'll be honest, the idea of bringing technologists and warfighters together is not new, right? We've we've, we've done it for decades. In fact, I would argue that 
our department and our two military services are founded on the emergence of advanced technologies, both in air and space. The question was how we were going to tackle those challenges, and we were taking very significant challenges of the future force as defined by our partners in the air and the space force and bringing together these groups of dynamic operators and technologists to really look at exploring uh, and quantifying the operational challenges as well as looking at at ideation phases to come through with with actual solutions enabled by technologies and i guess the bottom line is is you know there was a sense being relevant is not good enough it really is about the impact that we're going to provide on the future force yeah, Chris, I couldn't agree more, and and I appreciate the fact that you know you you stated that our roots are in technology development uh, as a force. So, how would you compare the vision, what you saw in the broader defense and SNT enterprise in the past years? And Sets, you know, please feel free to hop in, and and also, Kristen would like to hear from you as well on this one, because obviously everyone who's dedicated to defense innovation is passionate about their mission. But Secretary Wilson obviously sent something wasn't working uh, when she lost her, I'm sorry, launched her SNT review. So. Uh, same thing for uh, SecDef uh, Ash Carter when he launched uh, DIUX. So, Chris, we'll get started with you. A, a couple comments. One, yeah, we actually forget that there were there were two Wilsons that were impacting us at the time. There was Secretary Wilson, and there was also Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force Wilson. Both had a really compelling case, and I, I think the two takeaways to me was one competition of ideas. I think the secretary was really pushing for that. And General Wilson was pushing very heavily for flexibility and agility. We had to respond more quickly. We had to be innovative in how we use technology to make a difference. And the two of those together really kind of form the the backbone of of the TCO, as I see it, in terms of of what inspires and drives our processes. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Chris Ristich's uh, work is I would call it a second wave on top of the first wave, a number of over the last several years, a number of uh, innovation initiatives. There, there's some skepticism out there about the lessons learned from those efforts, but I know Chris is learning from those. There's another part of this slick that is important to factor into this, and there was a major change by the Air Force to try to harmonize across its missions and functions the developing of strategy, operational concepts, and requirements. And that was the accomplished in the formation of Air Force Futures, an organization that brought up from the major commands responsibilities for looking at their particular missionaries and deciding what their future force structure should be. So that's now all aggregated up uh, together in Air Force Futures, which uh, lives in the air staff in Washington, D.C. Now, They're a new organization, and they're maturing. There's a confluence of some challenges that Chris has to deal with in terms of getting good granular understanding of where the Air Force is developing that future force design, uh, its template for that, that can confront peer conflict. And that's what, you know, the urgency of this is in terms of meeting a potential you know, adversaries that can really create challenges for us down the road. Yeah, maybe uh, if you don't mind, maybe I can pipe in here a little bit just to build on some of the key points that you all are making, you know, starting even back as what happened from the change of the Cold War and then now to reaffirming in our national defense strategy that technology is critical to maintaining our advantage over our peer competitors. And so this science and technology investment and what Secretary Wilson did and the 
implementation by the Air Force Research Lab and then the, as you just mentioned, Stutz, the real reorganization and structuring of the uh, A-5 to create this Air Force Futures process is really kind of creating a, a terrific confluence of response that is necessary to keep pace with the pacing threat for China. You know, as the national defense strategy, as I mentioned, identifies technology as a critical enabler, we don't have the luxury of just being satisfied with a very strong S&T portfolio that's invested in the critical technology priorities, you know, whether it be hypersonics or microelectronics or quantum or artificial intelligence. What we really have to do is focus that portfolio on being able to demonstrate the advantage of these technologies to operational capabilities that can be employed by our airmen and guardians and then think about how to effectively transition those technologies. And, and so we can't just sit on our laurels, so to speak. And, and that's what's impressed me about the war tech process is that it's, it brings together the right stakeholders from across the enterprise, the defense enterprise. But even more than, than that, it's doing so with a real urgency and a real value in prioritization and, and, uh, and strategy. And so, um, you know, at, at the at sort of the headquarters Air, Air Force view, uh, I think, as Chris said, you know, we're bringing together these critical constituencies to be able to have that impact. And it's the bringing together of technology and acquisition and requirements and then ensuring that we're making the right resource trades to really bring the technologies to fruition. Kristen, you, you bring up a great point there, and I want to uh, drill into this a little bit further. You know, from your perspective, sitting in the Pentagon, you've uh, mentioned, obviously, you know, the different requirements and technology and acquisition processes that have its challenges, as we know, and it includes programming. And that's, you know, specifically, you know, as we've mentioned, no bucks, no buck Rogers, right? So a slimmed down Cold War type of force isn't going to cut it against the pacing threat that you mentioned. So how does Wartech really fit into this for you? Right. We've, we've actually laid out the process on a kind of a battle rhythm timeline that allows us to feed the resourcing process. Um, so that's the first thing we did is that we made sure that our decisions or our direction to the participants in the war tech, our outreach and the reviews and decisions and recommendations are all tied into our corporate planning process, which will help us to influence at the right time the leadership decision making for investments. And now we can include very, very critical technology investments. The other thing that we've done is to make sure that we are coordinating uh, with the resourcing and acquisition community as we go along the way. What I mean there is we want to make sure that we're underpinning these investments with rigorous analysis and red teaming, if you will, so that so that we're we're able to tee up fully fleshed out decisions at the right time, so that the leadership can make those decisions as well as understand the resourcing trades. This is probably the most challenging thing to do, you know, at the Department of the Air Force. You know, we've got a lot on our plate and technology brings to bear, you know, some very new emerging and disruptive capabilities. And so you have to be able to be able to understand 
how can you evolve from what you do today? Can you replace capabilities that you might be investing in today with new replacement capabilities? Can you augment those capabilities? You know, and how do you really make those hard trades? And so, so that's, that's, the other part about really trying to, in order to influence the resourcing process, you've got to be able to bring that kind of data and analysis to show the impact so that you can justify the resources and the changes in the investments that the department is making. Right. And it seems like it affords you a little bit more agility to make those resource changes. Seth, I want to ask you, what else you you have to add about the vision? Because you've been talking to a lot of folks involved in the process. Yeah. And I appreciate what Kristen said. The one area that frustrates many initiatives that are in the research community is, okay, a capability is developed or demonstrated and then transitioning it to a warfighter, getting, you know, hardware on the ramp is a very difficult thing to do, especially in the resource uh, constraints we have today. What both AQ and uh, and Chris have been working on, you know, what can we do to ensure that we're looking early on at probability and in the methods and the ways to ensure that coalition of the willing can get this across the finish line. Often uh, in the past, we've seen just so many demonstrations just go nowhere. They just lost support or there wasn't funding or whatever it might be. So this notion that upfront in this process, we think and prepare and bring on board the folks that have equity in it, an understanding of what the feasibility is of transitioning then monitoring risk to transition such that leadership can be flagged, the corporate process can be flagged, the warfighter can be flagged, and then we can make a decision to get things back in line or, or conserve resources. Well, Stet, since, since we have both uh, Chris and Kristen, you know, the two major stakeholders in this, can, can you both help me understand how this works? And let's, let's run through the process. Where does it begin? Who's involved? And how do we launch a war tech initiative? I could start off real quick, if, if that's all right. I, that's I mentioned our national defense strategy, which really sets our force planning construct. And of, of course, also where we have the joint war fighting concept, which those two major planning documents, strategic planning documents, set the structure for the missions that we carry out. And so with organizations like we discussed Air Force Futures and also Space Force Warfighting Analysis Center, these activities are generating an understanding of what the future force designs are for the two services. And it's not just a a list of gaps. It's really an assessment of the mission capability sets that are needed. And what's important is it's over time. And so you have this threat-based understanding of how we need to operate. And because we have you know, understanding of the threat as it evolves, as we perceive it to evolve over time, we then can also put a temporal plan to our um, strategy and uh, and activities. And so then with, with that as that foundation, we're able to give a signal to what are the key activities that are capabilities that are needed. And that strong signal is what what drives the, you know, the outset of the of the war tech process. You know, what are the strategic capability needs? And then I just might offer the incoming of our of our new secretary of the Air Force, Secretary Kendall, as many of you have heard, he's he's set forth a set of operational imperatives that are also based on that same derivation of of strategic guidance and understanding 
of where our peer competitors are with respect to what what they project their future force to be. And so there's seven operational imperatives that align to the threat over time. And all of these give the signals to the war tech community that help kick off the process. And Chris can join in and, and talk about how the transformational capability offers takes these and and then carries through the process. Yeah, thanks, Kristen. I mean, that, that's a, a perfect setup for what is the input, if you will, to our process. And the first step we then take is, is what we call our, our scoping phase. And the challenge there is to think strategically, looking across at the demand signal of the future force, if you will, knowing where we have some extreme challenges. And frankly, looking at the kinds of, of attributes of that future force and knowing where we don't know how to generate some of those capabilities. But based on where our current investments are, based on, on those challenges, we go through a scoping phase that allows us to es- essentially mold the operational challenge into what I like to think of as a challenge problem, a quantified challenge problem that we can then hand off to the following steps. The next step is where we really start ideating. How do we look at solution space enabled by technology and CONOPS to meet those different challenges? And once we've identified it as a quantified challenge problem, now we can start to share it with other partners in, in other government agencies across the services industry and academia and so forth. And I, I can't claim to, to have that perfectly down right now, but that is that is what the process is getting better and better each cycle. And we're in our third cycle now of Wartech. In fact, are just wrapping up this week our, our annual industry deep dive and engagement, our strategy interchange meeting to look for and harvest ideas out there in industry to help solve some of these operational challenges. Both of you, thanks so much for the guidance of you know really what paints the picture on what gets you started. But give us a hypothetical. So what does it look like to field an actual capability? I'll jump in, I guess. The first thing, Kristen pulled on that thread a few minutes ago. The very first thing is really getting stakeholder buy-in, right? We have to get stakeholder buy-in in all dimensions. We can't have technology development efforts and, and throw them over the fence. So it looks like getting operator buy-in, getting acquisition buy-in, understanding the logistics involved with these technologies. And the challenge there is because we're doing things that are transformational that we've not done before, there's going to be great unknowns and and there's going to be uncertainty. There's going to be maybe a a lack of confidence or trust early on. You know, it's so important that we develop the technology and get it into the hands of the warfighter as fast as we can and start to build an understanding of how we use these and the military utility of those capabilities as we push it. We work very closely with our transition partners as the programs mature technically. We are working with program executive officers and and program offices in general to help facilitate the transition of the capabilities to the field. And working with our partners in experimentation to actually get the the technology and the capabilities in the hands of the warfighter and understand its operational utility. Yeah, I would just offer that, you know, in the strategy that was mentioned, the S&T, the Department of the Air Force S&T strategy, that's one of the key attributes as it calls out this transformational component. It identifies, and we've really capitalized on this as we've made changes across the department's investment portfolio. The strategy talks very deliberately 
separately about the need to pair together complementary investments. It can be very, our financial system in the Department of Defense can be very cumbersome because we have different budget activities, right? And they're all managed and appropriated separately, right? And they have different owners and different resource sponsors. And so what our strategy did was really understanding what it takes to transition, as Chris just described, it very deliberately hooks together identifying opportunities to have complementary investments that are happening, not just, not just in series, but in parallel so that we can take technology, mature technology, as Chris just said, pair it with some prototyping and experimentation that may be going on, those types of investments, and then start to engage early with our programs of record, as well as our operational, you know, kind of fielding commands. So we're doing all of these things in a less of a sequential manner and more in a iterative and concurrent manner. And that's how we, we believe that we're really making a difference in um, acceleration of uh, transition to the warfighter. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and again, it just seems like you're able to kind of cut through a lot of the red tape to, to get done what you need done. And, you know, Chris, I want to ask you, um, you know, because I understand you have a couple of initiatives working their way through the process. Uh, can you give us an example of a couple of what they are? The, the first round of programs that we ran as an organization were really harvested from uh, existing or planned programs, uh, the, the, the vanguards, if you will. In the most recent series of WarTech activities, We've started tackling some of the challenges that were given to us in things like, what does a multi-domain uh, comprehensive sensing grid of the future look like? And our, our response through our ideation and our war tech processes was launching an activity called Resolute Century, which is looking really at, at real-time multi-domain battle space uh, awareness. Uh, we, we've also launched another program that's looking at generating combat power, multi-mission ISR and strike survivable hypersonic systems that can deliver individual effects uh, over large areas and such. So it's these kinds of transformational capabilities that are emerging from our process. And they're really significant for a number of reasons. One, they're, they're highly complex and transformational, of course. But they're, these, are, these are significant investments in technology to generate capability that's transitionable to the warfighter and will make a, a significant impact. So I'm, I, as I look at this, I, I, can, I can see the transformation of our portfolio addressing those grand challenges that we're given for the future force. Chris, thank you so much. And, and Stutz, I understand that Secretary Kendall has been pushing hard on uh, on the S&T world. He's worried uh, we may have too much in development, uh, stuff that even if it's successful in tests, will never transition into the operational world. This obviously dilutes resources and attention paid to you know what we need most. So how does WarTech feed into, what, uh, into this thinking? We got to be careful when we talk about this. Uh, I've heard misinterpretations of the Secretary of the Air Force, he's not against innovation. He's he's against undisciplined, too much adventurism, I guess, in my term, not his, and bringing more priority. What I would say at the start of this, there's risk. Everybody understands that or should understand that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't lean forward in the saddle and be ready to transition, as Chris said, this, uh, these technologies or this capability into the hands of the warfighter. So what's great about what, what the war tech process has done and what, how AQ has supported this is that the discipline of it is exactly what the secretary is looking for. And the promise or the aspiration that it will transition 
is something also that's unique to this initiative, totally in line with what uh, Secretary Kendall's been talking about. Maybe, maybe I can just offer a couple more comments because we're obviously working directly here at headquarters and just a little bit of refinement on just what Stutz was saying. The secretary's asked us to be cognizant of where we're investing and the projects that we're creating. Are they it kind of gives us three lenses, if you will. Are they operationally feasible? Is it something that we can actually do and deliver and implement within our tactics, techniques, and procedures? Like, can we can we actually can we actually use these the, a capability? The second is. Is it going to have an impact on the pacing threat? I mean, that's what we, that's his focus for us. And then third, we really have to be thoughtful about affordability. Maybe, you know, a super capability and it may be, uh, you know, potentially very impactful, but if, but in the grand scheme of everything that we've got to do and it's priority, what's the return? It may just not turn out to be affordable. So those, those three lenses are really helping us make strategic choices in our investment. Yeah, and that tees me up for my next question to you, Kristen. What does a winning process look like for you? And, you know, if you can look in your crystal ball uh, into the future or really uh, in five years from now, if you're looking back at WarTech, what accomplishments do you wish to see? Well, first, you know, I like Stutz and you've you've recognized what Chris Ristich is and his team have laid out has just been, it's really an impressive process and kudos to the team and I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of it. But, you know, in five years, what would I like to see? I would love to see more participants. I think that this process doesn't have to be just Department of the Air Force alone, really. It's not. Chris did mention that he's reaching out to industry, but there is opportunity for DOD-wide agency and more, you know, more ideas to enter the process, more dollars to share and make our S&T, our precious S&T dollars go further. The second thing is that we want to grow, continue to grow our joint mission analysis. You know, we're, we, we've talked a lot today about Air Force and Space Force mission capabilities. And what we know is that, um, you know, we're fighting joint. This is a pacing threat is, uh, requires a very joint response. And so, and so that's an area where we want to grow. And finally, I think from a building on that mission analysis capability, there's digital modeling and digital architectures and modeling and simulation and analysis technology capabilities that we can really apply here and continue that for even a faster process and faster transition. Chris, with you being the other side of this coin, what do you think? I'll build off of what Kristen said and just add a few uh, attributes of, of what looking back five years from now would look like. One is obviously success in transitioning. I, I think we're going to have um, some of those, and I'll, I'll just tease that out now, and, and we'll talk to them some other time, but uh, over the next year or so in some of our early, uh, earlier programs. I want to see us become facilitators of true multi-domain solutions. It's one of the challenges that we face by having a separate air and space force. How do we help become the, the bridge to facilitate multi-domain solutions at, at the system of system level? Uh, moving forward. And then the ultimate to me is not only do I want to have an organization that helps facilitate these kinds of activities and capabilities and responsive to the future force designs that we're getting, but I want to get to the point where, where the concepts that we're developing, these are actually reshaping the future force, where, where we are influencing the future force design itself. Absolutely. And Stutch, you're the outside partner here. What are your thoughts? 
I just emphasize what Chris just said is for the warfighter, it's about delivering that capability. And the stature of, of this initiative is going to be proven in what transitions into the hands. And I think uh, the closer we get to that, the more that's deployed, the knowledge of that, of what's going on. You know, a lot of what the great work that's being done by Chris's team and across the S&T community is not well known to the warfighter. You know, I go back to we're in these stovepipes today. There's there's a lot of smart people, but they're not necessarily watching or understanding the great work that's done by the talent resident and the uh, technologists of the Air Force and the industry that supports them. So better education, uh, I think it's not, it's a, it's a good thing that we've been able to participate with Kristen and Chris to be able to help get the message out about why Wartech TCO is different from previous initiatives, is learned from those previous initiatives, is moving forward in a very innovative way, and is producing. Yeah, you know, one thing, and we mentioned it a little bit before, but uh, it's coming to mind. So I want to ask uh, for each of you, you know, we mentioned the defense industry. Do they get to play a part in this? You know, are there opportunities for them to engage directly? I'm thinking about, you know, private investment that DOD keeps saying that they want to harness. So I just, I'm just trying to understand how they would play with Wartech. I think it's uh, not just defense industry. So, you know, when, when I talked about reaching out, I think this is now our critical technology modernization priorities. I think, uh, you know, 75% of them are really commercially led. And so it's, it is critical for, for us to have that outreach and that partnership. And so we, we do seek to harness, as you say, new partnerships. What we also know is they're making their own industry R&D investment. And so, like I mentioned before, you know, by having these partnerships, we can, we can create co-investment, especially in these dual use commercial and defense-like technology applications. That is a constant outreach that, that we seek. And then Chris can talk about maybe even, you know, the event like he held this week, specifically doing that. Yeah, I'd be happy to, to build on, on your, your thoughts there, Kristen. One of the things we've been trying to do since the stand-up of our office is to have a, a consistent message to industry that shows what the, the, the critical thought leads of the, the air and space future forces uh, are. And so we bring them into the, the right forums, typically classified forums, and we, ask, uh, we share that vision with them so that we can get a consistent idea of what those operational challenges are so that we can shape the IR&D, as you, as you pointed out, shape their investments, focus their energy on to achieve the capabilities that we know we need to have in the future. I think that one, that part is, uh, is, is really critical to what we do. And then specifically, uh, you know, and, and in, in consistently with those kinds of future force uh, concepts, we're launching our, you know, science and technology investments, and, and they have that opportunity then to help us to, to compete for those with, uh, with their ideas and their intellectual property uh, to bring to bear on these challenges. Outside the system, you know, here from Mitchell Institute, we deal with industry in a different way in that I think they share their soul with us and their frustrations when they come over here for talks and, and discussions. And before this initiative, there have been a number that industry was convinced that the initiative, the demonstration would transition to some type of procurement. And as a result of that, great anticipation of new force designs, new procurement, all these initiatives encouraged outside investment that supported those companies. We had 
very innovative company sit at the table with us, just exasperated that they, they're making a decision to leave defense business and, and go out in the private sector and just so frustrated because so much money. And, and their investors say, hey, we put enough in, where is the payoff? So there are business dynamics out there. And I make this point because in this Wartech process and what, what Chris is doing in the greater uh, transformational portfolio, you know, the ambition to acknowledging there's risk, there's always risk, and industry understands that. The intent is to transition these capabilities into a procurement program to get that capability in the hands of the warfighter. And that's a very, very important dimension of keeping the global pool of technology and industry, which is huge, attracted to the defense market. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. But uh, Tim, I'm looking at my watch, and I know we're getting a little tight on time here, but I want to offer you all the final opportunity to uh, share your thoughts. So uh, this time, let's go uh, Chris, Kristen, and Stutz. Uh, I'll keep mine short. I just want to thank uh, the Mitchell Institute for the the opportunity. The ability to get out, um, to get the word out, a successful war tech process for us is bringing in on a a regular basis the right kind of critical thinkers, operators, technologists, uh, strategists, acquisition folks, logistics, and so forth, uh, and getting out to leadership to provide the top cover and the support for those activities. So really appreciate your help in in helping us reach out to, to the community like that. I would also like to thank Mitchell Institute, and it's really a pleasure to be able to be part of your conversation today and, and uh, you know, the recognition that you're bringing to what we're trying to do here to better inform our science and technology strategies, better inform our requirements and, and future force opportunities that can be gained through technology, and really overall bringing together this overarching Department of the Air Force community to make in- the smartest uh, investment choices and plans as we can. Well, Chris and Chris from Mitchell Institute, we can't thank you enough for what you're doing. We actually believe that this initiative should be elevated as a pathfinder. What you two are doing is truly shaping a new mode of operation of thinking. Chris, what you just said about the talent that you've recruited, very technically savvy, but different about being willing to put their ego aside and take every input that's constructive and worth implementing in in improving the process step by step. It's a very impressive thing to see. And uh, like I said, you're a pathfinder to bring the rest of us, you know, the rest of the uh, Defense Department along with you. And I just uh, thank you for the work you do. All right. Well, yeah, this is just my time to say thank you uh, to the three of you for being uh, guests on today's show. We uh, definitely learned a lot and really looking forward to watching what WarTech brings to the warfighter. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.